Okay, Genesis chapter 16, I want to begin reading in verse 1. One thing I would encourage you to do as we go through this series in Abraham's life, hopefully it gives you an opportunity to be able to read ahead and uh, spend some time studying the text. Ask yourself, if I was going to give a devotional on this chapter, what would I say is the main theme, the main focus? Okay, so sometimes when we're working through a passage like this, it makes it a little bit easier for you to follow and then to take some time to do preparation before you come. This is an amazing story. I just want to read down through verse 6 for right now. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And you'll know that that's that's the tension hanging in the back of this story all along. Okay, there is an unfulfilled promise, and it has now been 10 years, as you'll see in just a moment. So he said to Abraham, or so she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, and that's the tension. Okay, 10 years, the promise has been made. It remains unfulfilled. Tension. Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Okay. What's your initial response to that story? Okay. We got some problems. Okay. Uh, We got some serious problems that emerge in this story. But where's the story taking place? taking place in the context of the family of the man of faith. Okay? Let me ask you this question this morning. How many, I, want you to, I want you actually to respond to this question. Okay? How many of you own a GPS? Have one in your car. Okay? Raise your hand if you have one. Okay. This is very much an age-related question I'm noticing at one level. Okay? Because all the older people are like, why? Okay? And then there's those of us that are in the middle. Okay? There are some floating around our household. But I have a problem with GPSs. Okay, guess what my problem is? Oh, I know how to use it. I, I actually figured that part out. <laughs> okay, but that was a problem for a while. Okay, here's my problem, and this—it's weird. I, because of experiences I have had with my GPS, I don't trust it. I don't trust that thing. And I, I can tell you, I've been in in the last three to four months. I have been in some of the Strangest situations, strangest locations because of where that thing's taken me. And let's just be honest, okay? You have a couple bad experiences with something that for the vast majority of the population is working very well. The first thought is, is it me? Okay, that's the first thought that comes to my mind. But the second thought is this. If I basically have an inherent distrust in my GPS, okay, how, how much of a blessing is it to my life? The answer is very little because it's talking, but I'm not listening. I'm not, I, I'm, I am inclined to be suspicious about all the directions that come from it. 
Okay, if you want to see me after the service, I can give you specific illustrations. Okay, of ways that it takes you that are not the shortest distance. Okay, and are not the fastest time. Okay, and and that has for me created a dissonance. And so that instrument that is meant to guide and to relieve stress for me has done what? It has raised tension when I'm out driving because here's what my daughters are constantly. Okay, and even my wife kind of joins in with us. We've never had a problem with it. Okay, and I, I think there's some implication that when you get to 50 and beyond, okay, that there's some unique challenges to go with that uh, age experience. In this story, Abraham has been listening to God's voice. He's been listening and God has been guiding him and directing him to very specific places and circumstances. He has been a man who largely can be accused of being responsive to God. He is ultimately the supreme example from the Old Testament of faith. Okay, that doesn't mean that he doesn't struggle. Okay, people of faith will go through seasons of struggle and difficulty that will stretch them. They'll go through seasons of failure. And God will persist in pursuing them. Because God's goal is to grow us to become the people that he wants us to be for his incredible and glorious purposes. This text tells you that Abraham has been waiting 10 years for a son. So what did he get? He got a promise from God, go to this place and I will give you a son. But there is a gap that has emerged in the story and that gap now has come to a place of 10 years. There's the promise of land. He's there, but it's not occupied. There's the promise of a son so that there will be heirs in his bloodline. That hasn't happened. Okay, and that that tension... That time span between promise and fulfillment has produced something that we referred to last Sunday morning as a reality gap. The reality is that the promises are in place. The fulfillment is very likely because of the faithfulness of God. But in the season of delay, what happens to our faith? We wrestle. We struggle. 2 Peter 3 addresses this exact issue. Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness. And what is he referring to? The promise of the second coming of Christ. In the early church, what were they thinking? He said he was coming back. He hasn't come back yet. So they're caught in this tension, in this reality gap between the promises that that we experience when we obey God and the reality of the fulfillment of those promises. And there's a gap in between that affects our lives. In this case, the problem is barrenness. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Abram's wife, Sarah, had borne him no children. And yet, the implied promise is that through Abraham and Sarah, a son will come and then a multitude of offspring that are more than the stars in the sky. That's the promise that hangs out there from chapter 15, goes back to chapter 12 in Genesis. Okay, that promise, it, it, it looks utterly remote. There is, in this case, no human chance of fulfillment. All right, and... Sarah is is beginning to understand that tension, and Abraham is in touch with that tension, so they both are in a place of vulnerability. Okay, they're going to face a temptation that is much like the temptations that you and I face. And this morning, to unpack this account from Scripture, I want to give you four simple words. And if you're taking the notes on the sheet, uh, you can fill these in. The first word is temptation. The second word is compromise. The third is tension. And the fourth is intervention. 
Okay, so four steps that we're going to take through this text. Temptation, then compromise, then tension, then intervention or resolution, if you want to use that word. Okay, so verse 1 of chapter 16 raises the tension, but it also raises a possible solution. Okay, notice what it says. She had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Okay, she has a woman in the house, and Sarah starts thinking in this context about what to do, how to find a resolution to the fact that there is no heir to bear the name of Abraham and to give him offspring. Okay, so the first thought that emerges is there is a temptation that arises in seasons of delay, in the reality gap. Okay, what is the tension? The tension is this. In settings of delay, it is hard to be patient. Okay, in seasons of delay, it's hard to be patient. And a temptation then emerges. Where does the temptation come from? For Abraham. You know where it comes from? It comes from his wife. Okay, it comes from, and when I say that, I mean this, okay? It comes from someone who is in his sphere of influence, who has knowledge about the living God, but what's happening for her? Okay, her problem is she's looking at the promise. She's not seeing the reality. She's looking at her own struggle, her own inadequacy that she feels, and it's driving her not to trust God, but to do what? Find a solution to the problem. Okay, and we all understand that because in the delay of the fulfillment of promises, what do we experience? We experience doubt. And if we are where we are because God brought us there, okay, what's the, what are we going to doubt? We're going to doubt God's direction. Right? Just like I do with the GPS. I'm going to say, yes, you said to go here, but I don't like being here. This doesn't look like the right place. This doesn't look like the destination that was promised. That's the wrestling that Sarah is going through. Folks, understand this, okay? Temptations in seasons of delay can come from many, many different places. And the evil one, the Bible says, will transform himself into an angel of light. He will make his advice look like it comes from God. To do what? To draw us to doubt the goodness of God. And I think this is what happens, okay? The temptation for Abraham comes from someone that is within his inner circle, it's his confidant, his friend. They left all of this and went there together. They've sacrificed together. They've taken risks together. And the temptation in this context is going to have this characteristic about it. Okay? When Sarah comes up with her plan, it's going to seem plausible. Okay? There's going to be something about Sarah's response to the temptation that there's something attractive about it. Because it seems like her plan will eliminate a tension that has been present for over 10 years. The real question in this text is this. Is God reliable? That's the tension. The temptation in this context is clearly, should I rest in the goodness of God? Or should I distrust the goodness of God, and come up with a way to get where he promised that we would be. That's really what's going on here. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Okay, why? James chapter 1 is all about what? It's all about the trials that we face in life. 
and in the midst of those trials that, that beat us up and that steal life from us in a fallen world, what happens? We have a tendency to doubt the goodness of God. Verse 17 of James 1 says that every good gift and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. In Him there is no shifting. His delay does not mean that he has changed his mind. His delay does not mean that he is no longer faithful. It means that his timing, his, his, his plan in terms of time for our lives is different than ours. Okay, and we, also, we all go through seasons of temptation like that. And we need to remember the promises of God's word. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 says, There is no temptation that has come upon you, but such as is common to man. Meaning there are people around you who are experiencing what you're experiencing. And God is what? Faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And in the temptation, He will make a way out so that you can stand up under it. Okay, He will make a way. What's the problem? My temptation is to doubt His goodness and to stop following His, his advice and guidance by the Spirit, by the Word, by Christian counsel. Okay, and then what do I do? I come, with my, I come up with my own plan for how I'm going to resolve the tension. So let's just... We'll, we'll, we'll realize that there is a, a temptation that arises in the season of delay. And then there's compromise. And this is the next step in the story, if you will. And the compromise is the temptation to use human plans to accomplish God's will. Okay, this is, what are we, we're asking, how can I work this out? Okay, how can I get God out of this apparent contradiction? All right, how do I get the promise to work, even though in God's timing it hasn't worked out yet? Okay, that's the, the situation that Sarah finds herself in. And she's looking around at the resources that are present, and she starts to take the resources and pull them to make up a plan to get the promise fulfilled. Okay, so it's almost like for Sarah an aha moment. Okay, she remembers Hagar, who is her handmaid, the servant in her household. And she starts to think, hmm, maybe I could give Hagar to Abraham and she could have a child and then that child would, because she's in my household, would become my child. And then that's, perhaps that's how God, and you've seen this earlier in chapter 15 too, perhaps that is how God's going to work this situation out. We are tempted in seasons of delay to use human plans to do the will of God. Okay? And all of us, we wrestle with this in various circumstances in our life. I'll give you a few illustrations of that in just a few moments. I want you to notice what happens here. Verse 2. So she said to Abraham. Okay? So she, she, she has an option that's viable. So she goes to Abraham, and here's what she says to him in verse 2. The Lord has kept me from having children. Okay? Now, what's your reaction to that statement? The Lord has kept me from having children. Is that true? Yes. It's absolutely true. Okay? That her barrenness is from God for purposes that are not yet clear to the people of faith. Now, to us in retrospect, it's very clear that God's going to let them go into the realm where birth is impossible and then God's going to act so that no one can take credit for what happened. See, in, the, in, the, in, in this season of compromise and temptation to use human means, what's going to happen? If Sarah's plan works, who gets the glory? 
man gets the glory. Okay, a human came up with a plan that did what God couldn't do. Okay, and that raises doubt about the goodness of God. So the first thing that Sarah does is, to kind of get the ball rolling, she comes to Abraham and says, look, I think both of us are well aware of the fact that we've been here 10 years and God has not fulfilled his promise. He is keeping me from having a child. What is that? That's Sarah blaming God for her problem. And she justifies it based upon his failure to come through and to fulfill the promise that God has given. She's living in this reality gap between promise and fulfillment. Secondly, verse 2, what does she say? All right? Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Okay, now the key word I think here is this. The words, I can. Okay? Where does that leave God? All right, that leaves God utterly out of the picture because what, have it, what has Sarah chosen to do? She has chosen to take control of the situation. This is what we're tempted to do. Things aren't working out like we want them to because we're walking in obedience and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden we see a way to do it through human planning, even though that planning is a little sketchy theologically, it's a little sketchy morally. And so what does Sarah do? She lays this plan out before Abraham and decides that she is going to build. Now, how does she build her family? She builds her family by compromise. Okay, and I think that's the thing that you need to see. I can build a family, but that is a compromise. However, okay, and this I think is so important that you understand this. In the ancient world, legal customs, and they've, they've uncovered manuscripts, documents from back in that time period that showed that this was an allowable means by which a barren woman could overcome that struggle because you were in an agricultural society, the next generation was crucial to your survival. Okay? And so there were means by which you could literally build a family. And it was legal, and it was not objectionable in that cultural setting. Okay? Doesn't mean it was the plan of God. I think the answer to that question is very, very clear. Okay? If you do any study of polygamy in Scripture... Okay, this idea of more than one wife, what do you find? You find tension, you find resentment, you find brokenness over and over and over again. At the time you get into the New Testament, things become very, very, very clear that God's design is for a man and woman to be joined together for life. That's God's plan. Sarah is understandably under pressure, but she comes up with a, an option that is legal. Okay, it's legal but it is certainly at least a human solution to a problem that God should be sought to solve. Okay? And I think it's just important we, we, we understand socially acceptable norms do not justify our behavior. Okay? God's plans and promises should be the, the markers on the highway of our life. They should be the things that are guiding us. Just because something is legal or even popular doesn't mean that it is right. Okay? Sometimes people come to you and say, hey, I've been wrestling with this and this and this, and I'm thinking about doing this. And in your mind, you know that's out of sync with God's Word. You know what you need to do? You need to be a friend. Abraham, in this case, needed to be the leader in his family. And say to Sarah, I understand the tension you're going through. I am praying with you and for you through this. But this is not appropriate. 
It may be unobjectionable in the culture, but it is not according to God's design, and it certainly is out of sync with His clearly revealed will. However, sadly, second part of verse 2, Abraham agreed with what Sarah said. And the idea here is literally, he listened to her. You know what? It's the same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 3 with the original sin. When Eve comes to Adam and says, why don't you partake of this fruit? What does it say? Adam listened to his wife and he partook of the fruit. Okay, he didn't stay the course with what God was saying and lead in a proper moral direction. He compromised for, any, for what was thought to be a benefit in the immediate setting. So compromise is the temptation to use human plants. Wrapped up in this account is an interesting statement. Where is Hagar from? She's from Egypt. When did Abraham and Sarah acquire Hagar into their life? Okay, you think back to another tension. Abraham's been here before. The famine in the land of Israel. Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt to find relief. There as they come out, they're blessed with numerous blessings, monetary and human individual help. Hagar is one of those. Okay, how did Abraham end up down in Egypt the first time? He doubted the promises of God. The famine caused him to concoct a plan to get down there, and he comes out. And what do you find now? You find residue in his life from past compromises and bad decisions that are now affecting his life. You see, folks, we we make choices along the way in our life, compromises in the context of tensions. We come up with human solutions, and we mess with our lives. Okay, and I think one of the lessons you learn here is be careful when you compromise because you may set, set in motion a course of cause and effect that you can no longer control. Okay, and what do we tend to think? Oh, I can control, I can, I can maintain this, this isn't going to affect others. And we find that it starts to. Compromise always produces a concert of sins. And we're going to see that as we move forward. And men, I think for us, there's a challenge that emerges out of this and out of a number of places in Scripture. God wants us to lead, okay, not dominate and domineer, but God wants us to set a clear course morally in our lives and in our families. Abraham failed to protect his wife in this story. Okay, so the failure is not simply hers for coming up with a plan. The failure is also his for going along with the plan. When he should have said, Sarah, that's not the way that God asked us to function. He should have appealed and called her to a higher value. Sometimes people in our culture excuse their behavior saying, this is how God made me. It's a way to justify and excuse sinfulness. In the context of sexuality in our culture, waiting seems difficult. We compare it to the world's norms and we, we slide the standard. We move the fence. In the area of sexuality, in the area of dating, God says for Christians not to be unequally yoked together. He wants us to wait for a devoted, faithful believer. That's his plan. Young people at times wrestle with this sort of tension, don't they? The desire to be accepted starts to affect language. It starts to affect appearance and dress. Because there is a desire to, to want to be accepted. And we can tend to compromise. That compromise will always lead to tension. Young people may be tempted to alter convictions in order to gain friends, to adjust their language, in order to, to gain higher approval from those around them. God says to us this. He says, test everything. Cling to what is good and reject what is evil. Psalm 119 says this. 
It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And then David in verse 19 says this. He says, your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Folks, I want to tell you something. When you're going through a season of tension, a season of delay, a reality gap that is stretching your faith and your staying power, you know what you need to do? You need to love the Word of God and say, this is my counselor. So that I don't come up with plans that are out of sync with God's Word, even though they may be acceptable to the world around me. The principle I think that emerges is something like this. Consult the Word of God to determine the will of God in your life. Okay, when you're faced with options and you're saying, I'm not sure about this, what should you do? I'm going to tell you what you should do. You should first ask the Bible question. Is this in line with the teaching and morality of the Word of God? Secondly, seek sound biblical counsel and actually listen to them. You know what we do a lot of times? We go and seek counsel and then we're like, never trusted them anyhow. Okay, treat them like the GPS. Okay, I hear what it's saying, but I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Okay, seek biblical counsel and let it be the means that God uses to direct your life. And I would say this too, men. It's easy to come out of this kind of a text thinking, oh, she's the problem. Well, no. No. Okay? You're welcome. I know, I, I felt the tension rising. I said, boy, I better say this. All right, I got a question mark beside this in my notes. No, I don't really. Okay? It, it is... Foolish to listen to your wife when she is leading in a path of compromise. And you need to lead. It is also foolish to have a predisposition to ignore the advice of a godly wife. Because she is a blessing from God in your life. Okay? Without my wife here, I can tell you, I think I'm married to the, one of the most godly women on the planet. Who is a rock stable. I am stupid when I don't listen to her. And I could, if you want specific illustrations, I will humble myself. You come up after the service and I'll give you a few illustrations, okay? It, it's just not wise to ignore the counsel of someone like that. Okay, and God brings people together with certain groups of friends. He brings people into your life to protect you when you're in a season of delay, tempted to compromise, and they speak the truth of God into your life. That's the person that's helping you, not the person that's trying to help you to cause it to work out, to come up with a better human plan, rather than trusting God. That person that pushes you back towards God and says, go back to God. He is faithful. He's not going to leave you in the lurch. He's there. Okay, that is, that is a gift from God in your life. What happens when we adopt worldly plans? And I think this, the next part of this story is, okay, Attention rose. Compromise takes place. Okay, what happens next? I'm going to tell you this. It just gets uglier. Okay? It just simply gets uglier because they took a social cultural norm, dragged it into the context where God is to be in charge, and now there is tension. Human plans, when they're used and when they're honored to the neglect of God's Word, always introduce unnecessary pain and tension in our lives. Okay, and I want to say that strongly to you. When we take human plans, as we're ignoring God's directive, it will always bring into our life unnecessary 
pain and tension. Folks, there is enough pain living in a broken world where you will be wounded by choices that people make along the way. God belittling and God ignoring choices. You will experience enough pain without introducing compromise into your personal experience. Okay, and I think one of the things that emerges out of this text is this. It is foolish to ignore God and to try to come up with plans to do His purpose while ignoring Him. What are the tensions that arise in the text? Verse 4. When Hagar saw that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Okay, what's the first thing that happens? Hagar becomes pregnant through Abraham. What happens to Hagar? She automatically sees herself as what? You understand how this works? Okay, now it's hard for us because there's a cultural gap. Okay, Sarah feels horrible. Because barrenness was seen as a curse at that time. Hagar is now expecting. What happens? Automatically, there's pride and resentment. This wall goes up between them. Why? They ignore God's plan. Stepped outside of God's will. Okay, most of us, I think in the context of our homes, we find out that our wife's pregnant. It's, it's a good thing. It's a happy thing. But Hagar is thinking what? I think God likes me more. You know what Hagar needs to be reminded of? Psalm 127.1. Children are heritage from the Lord. And when that comes, that, that's a gift from God. You can't take credit for it. That's a miracle of God's working in your life. She's experiencing a maternal pride, taking credit for something that she shouldn't be taking credit for. Sarah responds in a different way. And can I say this? We understand why Sarah responds so strongly. This is for her indeed a, an incredibly painful experience and set of circumstances. But it's her plan. Then Sarah, verse 5, said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. Okay? Wow, Sarah, this is working out good. Okay, Abraham, this is... What, what, what harmony, what unity in the home, right? No, when, when we ignore God's plans and God's directives, we introduce tension into our lives. This is inevitable. And what is Sarah doing? She's blame shifting. And folks, understand this. Blame shifting is not... It's not a female problem. Okay, I could take you back to Genesis chapter 12 and, or chapter 3 and verse 12, and what happens? In the fall, in the original sin in the garden, God comes walking in the cool of the day. He says, Abraham, or Adam, what's going on? And what, is, what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me, she gave me to eat, and I ate. Okay, so wh what happened? All of a sudden, it's everybody's like this. It's not my fault. Okay, I don't want to be humble and broken about the tension I've introduced into my life now. I want to blame everybody else around me. Happens all the time. If you've raised more than one child, you've watched this happen. It's a natural tendency to defer guilt. Because if I assume guilt, then where do I go with that? Okay, if I admit that I am a broken person, where do I go with that? I'm going to tell you, you're going to go to religion or you're going to go to God. When it finally sinks in that I don't measure up to the standards of a holy God, you're either going to go to religion and try to work it out and rescue yourself through a human plan, or you're going to go fall in the grace of God. And the tensions that come into your life through compromises and through human plannings can be the means that God uses to drive you back into His presence. And we'll see how that works out in this story. 
Abraham is guilty of what? Simply failure to lead. Look at verse 6. This is amazing. She says, you're responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows that she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between us. Abraham responds with this. Your servant's in your hands. I'm out of this picture. Okay, what does he do? He completely abandons his God-given responsibility to lead in his home. He says, you know what? I'm washing my hands of this. You asked me to do this. I do it. What you wanted happens, and now you're mad at me? Okay, I did what you told me to do, and now you're angry at me? All right, that's human nature, folks. Step outside of God's will, things go awry, and what happens? Everybody, this is what we start doing. Very few of us run to the mirror. Very few of us run to the mirror. And say, you know what? You're the problem. And then there's hatred. Abraham gives her, do whatever you want. And, and he just, he, he, there's an inversion here. Okay, where Abraham is giving up his role as a leader in the home. He tosses all the responsibility now on Sarah, even though he is complicit in this sin and in the tension and in the results. But now what does he want? He wants to run. And then the result is inevitable. Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And to mistreat here is a very strong word. It means to become abusive, to drive the individual out. Folks, that is never the resolution to compromise and sin in our lives. But it's a way that we often go. Anger builds up inside of us and we lash out rather than seeking a godly solution to the trouble that is present. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also eat. And folks, look, let this, let this tension in this story, and there's other things you can point out, let that tension be a deterrent to you. Let it be a danger sign on the road of your life. All right, that functions to keep you from. Look at their story. And make a commitment before God to say, God, I want to follow your plans, your will. In the delays, give me strength to trust you. Proverbs 13 says, the way of transgressors is hard. And what one writer said was this. He said, in this story now, we have a concert of sin and a concert of consequences, don't we? There's a main verse and there's a chorus. And there's a concert. There, nobody in this story is clean. Okay, even though everything that has happened is legally appropriate and not objectionable in the culture. Even Sarah's treatment of Hagar is not objectionable in the culture because people were treated as property. It's not the way of God. Once faith was abandoned, once trust in God was abandoned for human calculation, this family is caught up in a cause and effect path of trouble. And here's what's amazing. At the beginning, everybody's in control. But when you come to this point in the story, what becomes very clear? Things are getting out of, so out of control that Abraham says, you know what? I'm out of here. I don't. You deal with it. Okay, why? Because compromise had led in that kind of a direction. Praise God, the story doesn't leave us there. Trusting God's plan is always better than a shortcut in life. Always. It may be the longer road, but it is always the better choice. Are you this morning being tempted to take a shortcut? To get around something without obeying what God wants you to do and work your way through it.
Okay, that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What is the temptation, what is the delay that is causing me to come up with a plan that's going to raise tension in my life and draw me away from God? Identify it and say, God, I need to kill that. Go seek biblical counsel. Go to the Word of God. Find someone who will draw you to God's truth and actually listen to them. So Hagar is driven out and, praise God, that's the end of the dark side of the text. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. She's going south towards Egypt. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, here's a question, okay? Does God not know what happened? Okay, why does he pose this question to Hagar? Why? Think for the same reason that in Genesis chapter 3, a pursuing God comes to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? I knew I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you, Adam? What is God doing? God is graciously drawing Adam out, and in this story, what is he doing? He's drawing Hagar out. Okay? She's going back to Egypt. God says, I don't want you back in Egypt. I, and, and think about this. She's been gone from Egypt for 10 years. You're going to go back there pregnant? Think this through. Think this through. Okay, and what does God do? God gives her a very difficult directive. In 1 through 6, there's no mention of God. In verse 7, God comes on the scene and begins to work in a powerful intervention. And I, what, what I love about this story is that as this unfolds, you find it is God that comes and finds Hagar. He searches for her. Not because he had to wonder where she was, but the picture is of God pursuing and shepherding his people. And he graciously comes after Hagar. And this, I want to call this simply intervention. Okay, this is when the grace of God collides with this horrific story and situation. One through six, God's not present. Man's operating on his own human plans, compromise in, in the face of tension and delay and incredible trouble. And then the grace of God collides with human sinfulness. And how does it work? Okay, here's one thing that happens. God seeks her just as God seeks us. I can go back to Genesis 3 and find God is a faithful, pursuing God with Adam and Eve. And what is he seeking? He's seeking to bring restoration into, into their lives. We serve a seeking God. Same thing is true in the story of Peter, isn't it? After the denial of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, Peter is, is in a tailspin. And what happens? Christ comes pursuing to do what? To restore him. To bring him back to the place. Folks, listen. Please understand this. You can't, if you know the Savior, you cannot run him. And if you this morning know that God has been in pursuit of you, seeking you, please understand this. You are not fast enough to outrun him. And Hagar is like, she's had it too. Abraham washed his hands. She has no hope. She leaves and starts to run away. Is it what God wanted? Apparently not. Because God seeks her out and he finds her. He asked her to do what? To return and to do, listen. He says, go back and submit yourself to Sarah. Okay? God's directions always make sense, right? Not in this case. What an enormous request for trusting God. He says, Hagar, my plan for you is to stay there. I brought you there. 
I want you to go back. And there's no dialogue about it. He wants her to go back, to return, and to trust. No specifics are listed. Why? And I think at one level, this is, this is part of what's going on. God's aim in this intervention, in finding her by this well, is to restore her back to the place where she was. That's where he wants her to be. Okay, and even though that is difficult at many levels for us to understand, he provides a way for her to find restoration. And as, as, I, as, I, as I thought of this, I, I thought in terms of application. Okay, I thought of people that work in a difficult setting. That, that wrestle with what it means to be a Christian in a workplace where the leadership is abusive. Okay, and yet I have clear directives from God that in the context of the workplace, the employee should honor the employer. I also think of this in the context of marriages. Okay, I mean, in the workplace, what happens? You may pray for God to move you, but if he doesn't, what does he want you to do while you're there? You know what he wants you to do? Even with the boss who is imperfect, which is true of how many bosses? And employers. They're all imperfect. Why? I live in a fallen world. Some of you have employers that are wonderful and great, but I'm going to tell you something. They're imperfect. Okay, what does God want you to do? You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to reflect His grace in that situation. He wants you to respond to unfair treatment with grace. Why? That's what Jesus did. Here's the thing that astonishes me in this story. The thing that astonishes me is the person persons, Abraham and Sarah, the people of God, who are to be a light to the world, attracting people to God, what are they doing? It is possible for the people of God to repel people away from God. We're called to be the light of the world. Sometimes we are pushing people away from God. What is God saying? God's coming to Hagar. He's saying, you go back, St. Abraham and Sarah. Get your act again. Okay, he, 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 he is persistent in this way. Some people find themselves in, in, in the context of a difficult marriage. What does God want you to do? You know what I believe God wants you to do? He wants you to honor your mate. He wants you to love your mate. You see, we live in a culture that's largely driven by, what am I getting out of this situation? What happened to duty? Do you see? What happened to responsibility in the context of difficult situations where we're working out God's grace? Right? And finding ways to glorify Him in imperfect situations so that the watching world is saying there is no human plan or explanation for this. And they come and they ask Him, what do you say? God told me to stay here. Can you imagine how Sarah feels when Hagar walks back onto the compound? When she hears word that Hagar's on the horizon? Think about this. God comes after Hagar to return her and to ask her to trust him. What's the major thrust of the story? I think the major thrust of the story emerges in the two names that are at the end of this text. Okay? In seasons of doubt and struggle and difficulty. You know what you really need to remember? You need to remember who God is. The purpose for this account, I think, ultimately, is not so that we can figure out the, how to work out all of our problems. I think those things that I've already said are all implied here. But what is, the, what is the overarching story within this other story, within which this other story lies? What's the big picture? The big picture is that God is here. And in this, what does he do? He is revealing himself to Hagar. Why? And I think verse 11 tells us why. Notice what it says. 
It says, the angel of the Lord said to her, you are now with child and will have a son. And it, it, just for historical reference, okay, through Hagar come the Arab peoples, okay? And through Abraham's other son through Sarah comes the Jewish people, okay? And what, what is true about their relationship for the last 4,000 years? Conflict, okay? It's not new, okay? And I'm going to tell you personally, I don't think any president's going to resolve the problem, okay, from either side of the aisle, okay? This this tension is the long-term result or consequence of bad choices. Okay, but I think that there's a bigger picture in play here. So in verse 11, You are now with child, you will have a son, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. Okay, what does the name Ishmael mean? Okay, the, the L at the end is Jehovah. Okay, the Ishma part means hears. Okay, what does the name mean? God hears. Hagar, God has heard what? Her misery. As she's going back, this cry, this struggle that she was experiencing with Sarah. God was not distant from it, even though at times he seems distant. He heard what was going on in her life and was moving in her direction to bring restoration. He wasn't simply looking and doing nothing. Observing, you know, a, a, a street in the city from the top of a hotel, distant, removed, aware of what's going on, but unconcerned. No, God sees, and then what does He do? He moves in her direction, and He seeks her, and He meets her. So what is He saying? He's saying, Hagar, I have watched everything you're going through. And the idea of the statement is something like this. I am your helper who hears. God then gives her unbelievable promises that relate way down the road. And then verse 13, you find her response. In response to the, the promise of God, even though it is laden with some darkness and some tensions that are promised, he's heard your misery. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Ber Lahoi Roy, which literally means the well where God sees. And what is Sarah saying? In the midst of her struggle and difficulty and, ten, or, and Hagar's tension and struggle, what happened? God was aware of everything that was happening. And as Hagar responds to God and his promises in this text, what is she saying? You're the God that sees. Folks, understand this. There's no circumstance in your life that God is not aware of. And God is inclined to move in the direction of his children and to bring restoration and hope and provision. That's what he does. And I would hope that as you read this story and you see, you're the God who hears. I thought I was out here all alone. You were faithful. You're the God that sees. And how does God come? An angel or the angel of the Lord. Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. Is it a Christophany? Is it a Theophany? God appearing in the Old Testament? We're not sure. But here's what we do know. After this encounter, Hagar says, I saw it. And that seeing of the God who sees, that seeing of the God who has heard, becomes a deep encouragement. And she names a well after him. Who is she? She's an outsider. She's a woman who has been involved in sexual sin. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember another woman who was met by the messenger of God? 
at a well? And the story that starts to come to mind is what? John chapter 4. Where Jesus, God in flesh, does what? He pursues a woman who is an outcast of her society because of compromises in her life. She has a life full of tension that she doesn't want anybody to know. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and graciously unpacks her life and offers to her hope and forgiveness. And where does he do it? He does it at a well. A place of refreshing. A place where she could find hope in her life. Folks, this is the glorious truth of the gospel that's emerging everywhere in the book of Genesis. God who sees. God who hears. God who responds when you cry. So Romans 10.13 then makes a little bit better sense, doesn't it? Whoever cries out upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Will find rescue in spite of what? In spite of their brokenness. In spite of their sinfulness. Why? Because God came in His flesh to rescue sinners. Folks, that's our common ground. As we come this, together this morning. Faithless human plans will always complicate your life. Okay, they always complicate your life and raise tension. And if there are plans you're contemplating or that you're involved in that are outside of God's will, I encourage you this morning, abandon those plans in the face of the God who hears and sees. Cry out to Him and find the rescue that you desperately need. What else emerges here? He is the friend above all friends. What? Abraham abandoned her. Sarah abandoned her. God seeks her. God heard and God came and met her needs in a very powerful way, which is to say what? God loves all people. And folks, I want you to understand something. Okay, he expressed his love in this story to the mother of the Arab people. Okay? He expressed his love to the mother of the Arab people. Okay, you know what God wants us to do? God wants us to express his love. He doesn't want us to be full of bias and complaint. He wants us to be people that pursue to seek and save the lost because that's exactly what he did. At the, the woman at the well was not a Jew. She was a half-breed Samaritan. That's the way they saw her. No one else would talk to her, but God did. May we have that same kind of heart that says, you know what? Yeah, there are people around us who have made terrible mistakes in their life. You know what they need? Not judgment. They need grace. They need hope that comes through Jesus Christ. And I think that's an important lesson that emerges here. For Abraham, sin and failure are not the end of the story. I wanna, if you were God, would you continue to use Abraham? There's more to come too. Is, is he the guy you would have chose? Can we be honest? No. No. Not if he told me what was going to happen in the future, which God knew. God isn't in heaven saying, I... He's not surprised. He's not taken off guard. Why? He knows the future. He's the writer of the story. What is God doing? Why Why this man? Why Sarah? Why these scheming people? Grace. That is now in this story intervening and it is colliding with human sinfulness. And you know what it's doing? It's producing a man of faith. It's producing a woman of faith who are going to see God work in ways that are going to blow their mind and cause them to later laugh. 
They're going to experience a laughter of joy because they're going to see God work. It's been 11 years. What are you going to do? Like Abraham's going to come to the point they're going to trust God. I've tried my plans and all I find is these big messes and tensions in my life. Sin and failure are not the end of the story because God's grace is bigger than your sins and your fears. Verse 16 tells us at the end of the story, Abraham is 86 years old and Ishmael is born. And there's an ominous cloud over that part of the story because it wasn't done God's way. But God's still going to use Abraham in a powerful way. We live in a world where many people want to save themselves. They want a system of salvation that allows them to participate in the process. God's rescue of Hagar is a picture of grace. God's using Abraham is a picture of grace. God's using Sarah is a picture of grace. What we learn as we read their stories is that there is none righteous, not even one. All of us are in need of the love and grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. We find in this story that all of our attempts are like filthy rags. Abraham could not produce a son through human effort. Nor can you or I produce our salvation through human effort. Folks, when you come to the cross of Christ, you know what you find? You find that human plans fail and grace prevails. Grace prevails. And it's the thing for every person sitting, it's the thing that should give us hope is that, you know what? I can read these stories that talk about God and that forecast future events that display the grace of God even more clearly. And what do I find? There, there is a God who loves me. There is a God who hears everything. There is a God who sees everything. And you know what he's doing? He's pursuing sinners to rescue them, not based on their efforts and plans, but to rescue them based upon this amazing grace that collides with human sinfulness. He finds us where we are, and he changes our lives. He's a great God, and we have the privilege of serving him. Can we pray together this morning? Father, we thank you that you are...